You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good morning, everybody. I was originally set to go to Mexico, and then I got sick several weeks back, and it took two weeks for me to get really better. Um, Even now, if I miss a meal, I still start to feel it, so we just kind of thought it best to not push it on another international trip. And so Chuck went in my stead, which is wonderful. Um, Still everybody going down there. We were able to pray for them as they went out. 5 a.m., that was fun. Uh, Yesterday morning, went back home, went to sleep after that. but they all made it safe and sound, got texts last night, so they're, they're well on their way. It's going to be a wonderful trip. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series in foundations. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've talked about communion, we've talked about the love of God, and last week I talked about on our purpose um, as humanity, as a church, as individuals here on this earth. And so with that, I was considering this week, a lot of those things, when we really start to own them and understand God's will for our life and our lack of influence over our life, once we start letting God be the one who's in charge, that can actually bring on a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern, a lot of, how am I actually going to do that, Lord? And so with that, I wanted to return back to the passage out um, from the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through. Um, out of Matthew 6 when he's talking about anxiousness, anxiety. Um, And really, it's a deeper idea in this area of worry. Before I delve into that, um, I noticed on Thursday, because I have a lot of information today, I got to put on my teacher hat and I got to do a lot of study and it was a lot of fun for me this week. But I noticed on Thursday, I was like a fire hydrant of info. And so I want to help out with that a little bit. I want to explain a teaching method That is not common to us. It's not a Western teaching method. It's a Middle Eastern teaching method. And it's something that they would utilize to help you discover the truth that you're seeking to find. Very Western ideas. When we teach people, just say, this is what it is. Write it down. Memorize it. That is not the method that is common elsewhere in the world. The method they utilize is um, you actually experience it when you hear Jesus tell parables. He's going to tell you a little story. I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to give you a big idea, and you need to go and mull that over for a time. You need to chew on it for a while. You need to work on discovering the truth within what I'm saying, because part of your process of learning is that discovery where you get to have that aha moment. I actually got to have a few of these this week. I never saw it before. I was like, hey, there's always something new. Cool. Um, So the teaching method I want to explain right now is called a chiasm. A chiasm is where they will take a series of ideas and it'll be like idea A, idea B, idea C. And then they'll talk about idea B again and idea A again. And it creates this sandwich where you've got A, B, C, B, A, that little pattern there. The whole point of that is to drive you back to the center. So that idea that was C. What was that idea right there in the middle? Because all these things are going to be hinging on that central idea. And this is going to make more sense as I go through the passage today and I start explaining how we're going to see this in the scripture. So, out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? 
and the body more than clothing. I read that and I thought, yeah, but life without food's pretty short. I mean, we kind of need it, and it's kind of important, particularly when it's not there. And so it felt very, it felt a little bit more lighthearted than the reality of life without food. Isn't your life more than food? Isn't your life more than clothing? Well, if I don't have clothes that actually do the job, I'm going to really be worried about that. If I'm out in the middle of the snow and I'm wearing shorts and flip-flops, it's going to be evident that I need some different clothes here, that I need something actually that's going to do the job for what it is. And so it just, it didn't feel within Jesus' character to be making light of this. And so we need to take that into consideration as we continue on, because this whole passage kind of feels that way. It says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Yes, but I don't just go outside and start picking food up off the ground. How is that going to help me eat, Lord? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? That little sentence right in the middle there kind of comes off as odd. It doesn't seem to fit in there. We're We're talking about time now? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, gra- so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? How does that clothe me? I feel like I come away with more questions than not when I read through this just on its face. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, here comes the perspective change that is required for all of this to start making sense, is this one line. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We have to hold on to that because without that, none of this makes sense. Without that, this feels flippant. We have to hold on to that as we go through the rest of the passage, as we start to delve into and break apart what's really being said here, that we have to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So I got to the end of this passage I thought it was very flippant. I knew there was a perspective change that had to happen. And I thought, this is probably not going to make sense unless we get some context here. So what's the context? So if we start looking at the passage as a whole around it, we go backwards, we go forwards, and we're going to have a list of all of these. You have them in your notes, but here they are. If you go back a couple of paragraphs, Jesus is talking about prayer, and he's talking about fasting. He's talking about how we should be correctly interacting with God. And the next passage is about materialism. It's the whole portion where he talks about do not store up treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. Let your eyes be filled with light because the eyes are the lamp of the body. And if they're filled with darkness, then the whole body will be filled with darkness. And he talks about you can't serve God and money. It's a whole section on materialism, on what you see and wanting what you don't have. Covetousness about comparing yourself to others. And then we hit this idea right in the middle on anxiety, anxiousness, worry, worried about your, your life. And then he talks about judging. 
He talks about don't judge other people when you've got your own things going on. Because if whatever you measure will be measured right back to you. He's talking about not comparing yourself to others. And then he talks about asking. You don't have because you do not ask. You do um, knock and it'll be open. Seek and you will find. Which one of you who would give his son a loaf if asked him would instead give him a stone or if he asked for an egg would give him a serpent? You who know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father. It's talking about how you correctly interact with God. This is our chiasm. On either far end, we have how do you correctly interact with God? We move in a tier. Do not compare yourself to those around you. You need to be focusing in on yourself. And at the center of this idea is the anxiety that all of this festers in. All of this causes issues in. And so what we're going to be talking about today is how that God talks about overcoming these issues, overcoming how we correctly interact with him and how we deal with this materialistic comparing ourselves with others attitude through this area of anxiety and worry and concern about our lives. And actually, if you'll notice in the highlighting, within that, there's a little small chiasm as well. You'll notice if you look back in your notes, that first section and the other section that's not highlighted, they say the same thing. It's a purposeful repetition to drive you back into the center of that idea. And that center idea, that odd line, was time. Time being the crux of a lot of this. And we're going to reach that last. But we're going to begin with talking about food. Before I talk about food, I need to talk a little bit about how people approach life. And so there's going to be a diagram up here that you don't have in your notes. It's a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, Abraham Maslow, psychologist back in the 1940s, he published this idea. He said that people, all people, cannot move forward unless they take care of things in these tiers, beginning at the bottom. So beginning with physiological needs, air, water, food, clothing, shelter, sleep, basic needs of your life. If you're not eating, you're really not thinking about anything else. If you don't have shelter, you're really not thinking about anything else. You're not moving beyond that. It's going to consume everyday thoughts of life until it's taken care of. And it's, that seems to be what Jesus is talking about today, that base layer. If you can't get beyond this, you're not going to be helpful to anybody because beyond that is your safety needs, security, employment, resources, health, having a space of your own. And so those bottom two are kind of where a lot of people get stuck because you need to at least be in that third tier. Love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. That is the description of the church. That is being in a place where you can be built up, where you can be loved, where you have a place, where you can build in and then you can go out. Because beyond that, you hit esteem, where you have respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. This is where you start walking out your gifts. This is where you start utilizing the training you've been given. You start living that life that God has called you to. And finally, you hit self-actualization, where this process of sanctification, where you start actually seeing the fruit in your life, the changes that God has walked you through. And you start to actually see it within yourself. And you realize, I am not the same person I was two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I'm actually moving forward with Christ. But if suddenly, even at that stage of things, if suddenly you have no home, 
such as what happened almost a year ago today, your home burned down. There are people in this room whose homes burned down in the fire. That's all that's going to be occupying their mind. It's going to become consuming. And that's where we need to help bring them along, help them up out of this. And God is trying to tell us how to work through these difficult times and the normal times. Because you can be brought right back down to the base layer very quickly. So, hitting on that first idea of food. And I want to take a comparative look at what things were when the scriptures were written compared to how things now. And we really have to shift our focus, our context, to get what Jesus is driving at here. Because we have a vastly different way of approaching food in America compared to food in Jesus' time in the Middle East. First and foremost, perspective shift. Preservation of food is new. That's a very new concept. And it all began with refrigeration in about 1740, 1750, in that time period. I'm a little vague. I have a lot of dates in my head right now. That's when refrigerators first came about. Large, big ones, not really movable ones, not the ones you'd have in your, in your kitchen. But at least refrigeration existed so you could preserve food for a length of longer time than two days. Because before fridges, anything that was moist, imagine that, no refrigerator in your house. Put a cup of yogurt on the countertop and let it sit for two days. Who's having a bite? <laughs> it's a different way of looking at eating, at approaching food, at when you can eat it, how often you have to get it, how often you have to take care of it, and all how, how often you have to be getting stuff fresh and new. Because it's not, there's no way to chill it. There's no way to bring that temperature down so that it doesn't go bad. The only way they could preserve is either through salting, heavily salting food, or drying it out. And oftentimes both, such as salted fish. Why salted fish is an example? Because they're around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is preaching to the Galileans right now. And that is their main industry. This would have been a immensely personal example to these people. Now we gotta think about how your food gets about, how you store it. There is no Ziploc, there is no Tupperware, there's no saran wrap, there's no tin foil. At best, if you wanna move food, you have a clean piece of cloth that you can carry your food in. And it's only gonna be good for two days unless it's dried out. I hope you like dried cranberries and dried figs and crusty toast and dry, dried everything in your life because that's what they had access to. And then if you had to travel anywhere, any period of time, it's a totally different way of look. There's no just stopping off at the 7-Eleven and grabbing a bite to eat. And then the idea of where your food comes from. How many of you have ever grown your own food? Excellent, quite a few of you. How many of you grew your own food because you were going to starve if you didn't? Everyone at this time would have had to either have a field or a garden, or they were starving. It's an entirely different way of looking at the subject. Most of us, the majority of our food, we think it comes from the store. And it doesn't. 
And I know most of you know that, and it's a little cheeky, but it's this idea of where does it come from? How do we get it? And realizing they had to own it. They had to do it. They had to walk it every single day. It was up front and close in their life. How are we going to eat? And Jesus is saying this thing that feels so very flippant about that. But Jesus isn't flippant about this subject. He takes this subject very, very personally. When he talks about the end of days, when he's going to be sorting people to the left and to the right, and what have you done, this is what he says out of Matthew 25. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you prevent a person from starving, you did it to me. When you gave them water when they were thirsty, you did it to me. When you clothed them, you did it to me. God takes it personally. It's a big deal to him that his people don't go hungry. The whole purpose of tithing, of giving back to the forehouse, storehouse, the forehouse. <laughs> the storehouse is to make sure the Levites can do their work and there's food for the hungry. That is the, whole, that is the, the purpose of the tithe. That is why it's instituted that there may be food in my house, says the Lord. But he says these things to people out of John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. When you're hungry, you're not going to see the treasures before you. You're not going to see that. You're not going to be worried about the amazing truths that God has for you when you're hungry. And so he's saying to us continuously, seek after me, chase after me. And a lot of us might think, but how does that feed you? How does that keep you from going hungry? How does that put food on the table? Well, we have to go and seek God's word to get the answer to that question. We have to go back to the things that this people would have known how they were expected to live, how they were expected to under, interact and treat one another. And I can answer this question in three specific verses. And the first one is Leviticus 27, 24. This is talking about the year of Jubilee, when everything goes back to who it belonged to originally. If you had to sell your property because you were on hard times, you would have sold it to a neighbor, to a friend, whoever. And in the year of Jubilee, they have to give it back to you. Because God's purposes for his people in the land that he gave them is that every single family has a means for growing their own food, has a means to eat, to survive, to take care of themselves. And no one will ever lord it over one another amongst you. There will always be the ability to live, to have the basics of life. We look at Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, and it says, when you harvest your field, you will not harvest it to the edges. If you drop anything, you will not pick it up. You will leave some for the poor, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Even amongst you, you, 
your property, your field, your things, you will leave some for those that do not have the ability to get it on their own, that have fallen on the hard times, that are in a difficult place. You will do things so that they still eat. And so he's calling to us. If we apply God's words to our lives, no one goes hungry. It's a calling out to the time. Why is there anyone hungry? Because people aren't following after the word of God. They're not seeking after the word of God. They're seeking after their own personal desires. And this isn't an attack on the church. It's simply a realization of what causes the solution. It's following the word of God. It's listening to what he says. It's walking it out. It's loving each other. It's caring for each other. It's considering one another as we go through this life. Out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, it says, when they, manna fell down in the desert where there is not a lot of food. Manna fell down in the desert day by day that the people might learn that man does not live off of bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. It exists there because of the Lord. You're sustained because of the Lord. And it's this realization, this lesson that was desired for everyone to learn that we continue because we depend on God. We walk out what he said. It's not simply just going to his word and reading your Bible and going, somehow this will feed me. Not at all. It's saying when God's people are really God's people, they take care of each other. They watch over each other. They consider. They build up. When people within a community, and this is the big part, this is a such an essential component of this. When you're in community, you actually have to be in community. It's more than coming on a Sunday morning. It's more than just saying, hi, bye, it was nice to see you, great lesson. You actually have to be known. You have to be plugged in. There have to be people around you that know you because you could attend church every day for a year and be completely unknown. There's a part of actually being within community for all of this to work together. These people were actually in small communities, neighbors that were, they were, walk, they were with each other every day. They were meeting at the well to draw water. How many of you have drawn water from the well? Where you have that place where you congregate, where you meet together, where you shared the stories of the previous day. And that's what they would have done. Been a, they would have been a community. We have to make it happen now. Because we are living in such a time where we can go to work, we can put our head down, or some of us don't even go to work anymore. Not that you don't work, but you don't go. You just go to, you come out of bed, and look, there's the office. And you get on the computer, and you do your work. You don't even go anywhere anymore. It's not a bad thing, but it's a realization. It's more effort to be in community. Because it's so much easier to just go, do your work, go home, close the door. We have to put effort if we want that community to actually take place in our lives. And this is what God is calling us to, be in community, care for one another, and no one goes hungry. No one should be worried about those basic, basic needs because you're there for one another. You're asking each other, how's it going? And you know each other, and you're comfortable with each other enough that you can tell them it's been hard because that's actually hard to do, to be honest about Times are bad right now. It's rough. We're having to decide between gas and groceries. And being able to share that means we can help take care of each other when it happens. So then God talks about clothing. 
And it feels like that's still in that base area of needs, but it's not. And I didn't actually discover this until this week, what he was talking about, because he compares Solomon and the lilies. And so I thought about that for a while and I considered Solomon and I went to look at what was Solomon adorned in? Because it talks about him in all of his splendor and how he looked. Okay. And so did some searching around and I found, and there's going to be a photo here. They found a scrap of a garment actually from the time of Solomon and David. It's in really good shape. That's 3,000 years old. But the significance of this scrap of garment is that darker section. If it kind of might be hard for you to see, it's purple. Now, we take color for granted in our day and age. Our world is actually quite small compared to what it was. But this is known as Tyrian purple because it comes from the region of Tyr, T-Y-R-E. It's a place called Tyr, where they harvested sea snails. And the sea snails, when they ground up their shells, made this very particular purple. And it was exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. Where quite literally, whatever the weight of that ground up powder, you would pay that weight in the exact same weight of gold for it. Meaning the only people that wear this color are the absolutely wealthy. And this is what Solomon would have been wearing because Solomon was exceedingly rich. If you go back and you read about the account of the Queen of Sheba and she just describes everything, it's just she, her mind is blown by how amazing everything is. And this is the comparison we have. This is the comparison of what Solomon was wearing. Now, clothing is to keep you warm or to keep you cool and to protect you from your environment. So why does it matter that Solomon was wearing this color? Why does that matter? Why is that significant? Because we know he was. He most certainly had the best of the best. But why? Because that's the big question here. This is where we dig for the treasure. Why did Solomon wear that color and why did Jesus point it out? Clothing says something. We all know this. It was the rarest thing around. That says about Solomon, I can afford the best. I am therefore the best. Think about What exudes power to you? Think about a person who you think that person is a person of authority and power and respect. I want you to just envision that person in your mind for a moment. Is that person wearing a dirty t-shirt and ratty jeans? Okay, are they wearing a clean t-shirt and normal jeans? (laughs) Are they wearing a suit or a uniform? Are they wearing something specific that says authority? And was it that that you envisioned first? Was it what they were wearing? Because this is often what we're comparing. This is the first look that we give around us on whether or not we will treat someone with respect, not based on the person, but based on what they look like. 
And Jesus is commenting here, why are you so concerned about what you're wearing? When Solomon in all of his glory and his splendor and everything that he could afford and he could show an I am the king could not compare to a simple lily. We're going to show the lily of the field in its beauty, in what it is. This is a white lily. That's almost no color to it, but you bring that into your house and it will brighten your room. It will bring beauty to anyone that wears it. It is beautiful because of what it is. This is what we are called to. Not be a flower, not be pretty. You're called to be beautiful for who you are, not for what you wear, not for the adornment, not for what's on the outside, but be beautiful within. We are being called to clothe ourselves with God's righteousness and let clothing be clothing. The next graphic shows how much we spend in America on clothes every year. So this is year by year from 1992 to 2021, and this is in billions. So that far end, 2021, is $302 billion in clothing. The U.S. population of last year was approximately 343,919,343 people. And when I divided those two over each other, it came out to an approximate value of $900 for every man, woman, and child a year, that, that year on clothing. Now, that means that in my household last year, I spent $900 on clothes. My wife Emily spent $900 on clothes. Philip spent $900 on clothes. Charlotte spent $900 on clothes. And Eleanor spent $900 on clothes. And Henry didn't exist yet. That's $4,500 on clothing last year if we go by the statistic. That much money was spent. That's, that's not the average. But I know that I did not spend $4,500 on clothes last year. Meaning, if I'm spending less, someone else is spending a lot more. This is a big deal to a lot of people. There's a lot of money being poured into how do I look? How do people perceive me? And how do we compare that? Because if this is the average and we consider this, people are spending a lot of money on clothes. How much clothes do we need? Think about your closet. Because we have a bit of a different problem compared to then, now. It's so much more accessible. It's so much more available. That's the same thing said twice. I just changed the words. <laughs> but it's cheaper. It's not as made as fine. We don't tend to take care of it. We consume. And it's a part of where we're at. But at this, this time, we're going to go way back to the time of Judges, what they thought was a lot. Judges 17. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. This is actually a terrible story about a couple of terrible people, just so you realize. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. A suit of clothes, shirt, pants, undergarments. One suit of clothes a year. Good deal. I'm in. One shirt, one pair of pants, undergarments, one a year. 
that was the value. If they could manage that, we're doing pretty good compared to where we are at now. Just think, you may have not spent $900 on clothes, but think of how much you spent. Was it for one or many? And was it, was it because, because this is a perfectly acceptable reason to get some new clothes, was it because they were all worn out? Or because we just wanted something new? Because we liked the way it looked, how we'd be perceived in it. And I'm not condemning, I just want us to realize what we're doing and why we're doing it. Out of 1 Peter 3, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But you let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, within the context, Peter is actually addressing women within this context. But I see no reason, based on reading that, that that cannot also apply to men. Do not let the focus be outward. Let the focus be inward. Who are you? Have you allowed yourself, within the context of who you are and how people perceive you, to be defined by turning first to the kingdom of God and seeking him in all things? Because if you do that, and if you walk out sanctification with Christ and you become more and more into his likeness in every day and you are loving and you are kind and you are respectable and you are honorable, then it doesn't matter what you're wearing. People will see that when they see you. They will look at you and they will know the character of who you are and how much more glorious that is than any suit, than any dress, than any apparel, knowing that when people look at you, they see the wonderful person that you have become through the work that Christ has done within you. The last area, this focal point that Christ talked to us about was time. Time is often referred to as the great enemy, the ticking clock moving forward that you cannot escape. And I want to think about your life and your time and how much time you have and how you feel about your time. And I want everyone in this room to realize everyone here has enough time. Exactly enough time. Because you all have the same exact amount of time. And you do not get any more time. And you do not get any less time. And God has called us to things knowing the time we have. We have exactly the amount of time we need. How many people in the room feel that with your life you have exactly the amount of time you need? And so to consider, if God has made this world in this way where you cannot get any more of this, consider the life you're leading. Are there things that you're doing that do not fit into God's desire for you that we simply want to do and then when we start doing them, we think, I don't have enough time to do all the things I want to do. You're right. You are absolutely right. But you have enough time to do all the things that we need to do. And so I always go back to the passage out of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, to help define how we should be spending time. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I did a lot of circling, a lot of boxing, a lot of underlining. How do we need to be spending our time? We need to be spending it wisely. We need to be spending it on the best things. We need to be spending on things that bring a melody unto the Lord, that please God, that make him sing for joy over us, and to be doing so with everything we do with thankfulness in our hearts to God for what we have, for the place we're in, no matter what the context is, being thankful unto God. Because the days are evil. They're going to run away from you. They're not going to slow down. You have just enough time, but you don't get to allot it when you want it. You have to take it as it comes. And it's very easy to get it caught up in foolish things or things, when it's talking about being drunk with wine, things that cause dissipation or a lack of productivity, things that take away from your time. Ultimately, when we look at what we're doing, are we fulfilling the will of the Lord? And are we taking time? Whenever we talk about time, it is vital to understand that you need to take time to do nothing. Every week, for a whole day. And God thinks this is really, really important. Out of Exodus 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner. Who is within your gates? Everybody, stop. Just stop it for a day. I know that's hard in our culture. I know it rebels against our culture to do that. And we feel lazy when we do that. And we feel self-conscious when we do that. We're not being productive when we do that. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And realizing we have discovered over time that if we don't choose to get good regular rest, which is basically the definition of the American culture, it will actually cause some major problems. Because good rest, good daily sleep, and good regular rest to your body and your soul brings physical regeneration, increased memory, increased creativity, lessened stress, and greater productivity in anything you do by simply not doing things for a little bit. Now in the reverse, we have to realize if we choose not to do this, if we choose to keep on plowing forward and keep moving on, and I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go, you will be, we'll just go backwards. You will not be as productive as you would be otherwise. You will be more stressed. You will be less creative. You will have a more difficult time with your memory and your body will break down faster if you choose not to listen to God's good counsel on this, on just taking a break and being good to yourself. God has commanded, be good to yourself once a week. Get good rest for yourselves so you can do more. We have to realize that in God's economy, simpler is better. It will make you go farther. It will allow you to do more. 
We have to make Christ central in the reason we do things, the reason we live our whole lives, how we walk them out. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This entire life is a mental and physical war of attrition. We are going to be worn down the older and older we get, more and more. So if we choose not to learn this lesson, it will get harder and harder and harder. And the enemy you face doesn't sleep. The one that's going to try to beat you down, wear you out, make you ineffective. He doesn't have to sleep. And you do. And he's trying to convince you you don't have to sleep either. And you shouldn't be because it's selfish. You can sleep when you're dead. Anyone ever hear that? There will be plenty of time then, but there's also plenty of time now. We have to turn to God to find rest for not just our bodies, but for our souls. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And if we are a community, and we are plugged in, and we are known, and we love each other, we care for one another, there should never be a worry for food and clothing again for anyone. And that when we actually walk out this life, this simpler life that God's called us to, we actually find we have more of that great commodity time. More time to live that kingdom life that God's called us to, to fulfill his purposes and to live in a more fulfilled way. And all it takes, all it takes, is making Christ the foundation and the center of what we do. Amen?